0: Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to read and preach verses 28 through 32 this morning, which are about the mercy of God on the disobedient how God's purpose in saving all his chosen people, which Paul's been talking about in Romans 11, both from among the Israelites and from among the Gentiles, God's purpose in saving his people is to show the brightness of his mercy in contrast to the darkness of our disobedience. The stars shine brighter when the sky is darker. An engagement ring really pops when it's in a ring box that has that black velvet background to it. And the brightness and the brilliance of God's mercy shines forth more clearly when we see it against the backdrop of the darkness of our own disobedience to God. If God saved his friends, that'd still be an amazing thing. But of course, he didn't save his friends, he saved his enemies He saved those who disobeyed him, both from among the Israelites and from among the Gentiles. He saved you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He showed mercy to you, even when you were disobedient to him. And he offers mercy to all who come to him in humble repentance and sincere faith. He is full of mercy. He is rich. In mercy. And he bestows his riches on all who call on him. So we're going to see in these verses together how God's purpose in saving his people is to show that brightness of his mercy and to show it to us in contrast to the darkness of our disobedience. And I trust the Lord will use that to encourage our hearts this morning and to sanctify us in the ways we most need to be sanctified. So let's pray that he'd be merciful to do that in each of our hearts, and then we'll give our attention to his word together. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would encourage our hearts in the knowledge of the truth. We are so easily discouraged and weighed down by our sin and by our circumstances, and we pray, therefore, that you would encourage us and sanctify us in whatever ways we most need to be sanctified. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our character and our words we've spoken, our actions we've taken. We pray and ask that by your power, you would refine us and conform us more and more into the image of your Son. Help us to see more clearly the brightness, the brilliance of your sovereign mercy that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Romans chapter 11, reading verses 28 through 32. These are the words of the living God given to us through Paul. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that By the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. You can see the two main points of the sermon in your sermon notes there. Enemies, yet beloved, in verses 28 and 29. And then disobedience and mercy in verses 30 through 32. And let me just give you a brief summary of the verses before we dive into them, so hopefully you can wrap your mind around what Paul's saying here. In the previous verses, he talked about how God's purpose is to save all his chosen people, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles, meaning all the elect among the Gentiles, as well as, quote, all Israel, meaning all the remnants of elect Israelites down through time. And then in our verses this morning, Paul is continuing to address the Gentile believers in Rome. And after telling them in the previous verses that all Israel is going to be saved, he's now explaining to them why all Israel is going to be saved. Even though they're enemies of God when it comes to the gospel, since currently they're rejecting the gospel, they're actually also beloved by God because of the decree of election. God has elected them to salvation, and so in that sense, they are beloved, even though they're currently also God's enemies because of their unbelief. And because the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable, as he says, he's going to save all Israel, according to his sovereign decree. He's going to save all the Israelites that he has elected to eternal salvation. That's verses 28 and 29, enemies yet beloved In verses 30 through 32, he's going to talk about disobedience and mercy and how just like the Gentiles were disobedient, but then received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so now disobedient Israel is receiving the mercy that the Gentiles received. It's like those trees I mentioned before with two trunks that are intertwining or interweaving So it looks like they're sort of braided together as they go around and around and up and up. Israel is disobedient, so the Gentiles receive mercy. And because the Gentiles receive mercy, disobedient Israel receives mercy by the mercy shown to the Gentiles, around and around and up and up two trunks interwoven into one tree. And that is God's purpose for both elect Israelites and elect Gentiles, to show mercy on both, even though both were disobedient, so that, again, the brightness of his mercy would be seen more clearly against that dark backdrop of disobedience. So that's 30 through 32, disobedience and mercy. And with that general summary in mind, let's look more closely at verses 28 and 29, and what we learned there under our first main point enemies yet beloved. Note three things here what Paul says about them being enemies of God, that's in the first sentence of verse 28, and then what he says about them being beloved of God, that's the second sentence, and then what he says about the gifts and the calling of God in verse 29. First, Paul says that they are enemies of God. He says at the beginning of verse twenty-eight. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards the gospel, that is, as far as the gospel is concerned, looking at them through the lens of the gospel, they are enemies. Because they've rejected the gospel. They're currently unbelieving. The gospel, the message of salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, they've rejected that message. And therefore, as regards that message, as regards that gospel, they are enemies. They are enemies of God. Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica about the Christians in Judea First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. Though they think that God considers them his friends, because of their rejection of the gospel, he considers them his enemies. I notice that Paul tells these Gentile believers they are enemies. For your sake, which repeats the thought of verse 11, that through their trespass, the trespass of the unbelieving Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, in that sense, they are enemies for your sake, for your benefit, Gentiles, in the providence of God. So, Paul says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. For your sake, looking at them through the lens of the gospel, since they have rejected the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, Gentiles, since through their trespass, salvation has come to you. That's looking at them through the lens of the gospel, but then Paul switches lenses, like the eye doctor does at your eye appointment, and he says in the second sentence of verse 28, but. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So looking at them through the lens of the gospel, they are enemies of God, but looking at them through the lens of election, they are beloved of God. As regards election, God's eternal decree to save them in Christ by his grace and for his glory As regards election, looking at them through the lens of election, they are beloved. Even though in the present they're unbelieving and are therefore enemies of God, from all eternity past they've been part of the elect and are therefore beloved of God. If you think about it, it's possible for someone to be both an enemy of God and beloved of God at the same time. That's what we were as believers before we were converted. As regards the gospel, we were enemies of God because we were unbelievers. But as regards election, we were beloved of God because we were part of the elect. We were part of the elect by the sovereign grace of God. We just hadn't been saved yet. So if you looked at us through the lens of the gospel, you would see that we were very clearly enemies of God. But if you switched lenses and looked at us through the lens of election, you would see that we were beloved of God, beloved from all eternity past, even though in time we hadn't yet been converted to Christ. Same with them. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God, but as regards election, they are beloved of God. And notice that Paul says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers and for the sake of the promises made to their forefathers, I think is implicit here. For example, Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, That the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Or Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. As regards election, looking at them through the lens of election, they are beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers, for the sake of the promises made To their forefathers. So in verse 28, we've noted what Paul says about them being enemies of God and beloved of God. Thirdly, note verse 29, what he says there about the gifts and the calling of God. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Even though they're enemies of God, they're also beloved of God for or because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So election is irrevocable. The promise of salvation is irrevocable. Effectual calling is irrevocable. All of God's purposes and promises and provisions for his chosen people are irrevocable. They're irreversible. They're unbreakable. They're unchangeable. What God has decreed, he will perform. What God has purposed, he will accomplish. What God has promised, he will fulfill. He won't take it back. He won't undo it. Rather, he will do it according to his word. So Paul's saying because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, he's gonna save all Israel. Because even though they're enemies of God in terms of the gospel, they're beloved of God in terms of election. It is his purpose to save all the elect among the Israelites, and he will accomplish that purpose. That's what Paul's saying to these Gentile believers Well, what can we take away from this as believers in Jesus Christ today? Three things. First, in light of what Paul says here, I think we should be humbled. We should be humbled. Referring to the unbelieving Israelites, he says that as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. And that is who we were. Before God saved us, we were enemies of God. We were not friends of God. We were not favorites of God. We were his enemies. And he was our enemy. We were hostile to God, Romans 8, 7 says. We were friends with the world and foes of the Lord, James 4.4 4 says. We were enemies of God, and I think we should be humbled by that truth. The hymn writer John Newton, author of Amazing Grace and many other wonderful hymns that we sing, before he was converted, he was at one time the captain of a slave ship he participated in the african trade slave trade which after he was converted he opposed with all of his might helping and advising his friend william wilberforce in opposing it but i would imagine every time he remembered that he was once the captain of a slave ship i imagine he was greatly humbled every time we remember that we were once enemies of the living God, we should be greatly humbled and thankful, as Newton was, that God would save a wretch like us. Secondly, by way of application, in light of what Paul says here, not only should we be humbled, but we should also be encouraged We should be encouraged because we were God's enemies, so therefore being humbled, but we are God's beloved. So we should be encouraged. Paul said about the elect Israelites, as regards election, they are beloved, and that is true for all of the elect, both Jews and Gentiles. We were God's enemies, but God in his great mercy loved his enemies and died for his enemies and saved his enemies. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God loved his enemies and died for his enemies and saved his enemies. Look back at Romans nine. For just a moment Romans chapter 9 I just want to show you a few verses in a few places here Romans 9 verse 25 verses we can draw great encouragement from as believers in Jesus Christ Romans nine twenty-five. as indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Turn ahead to Ephesians chapter 1. Book of Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 5. I'll show you two different places in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. Paul writes there, in love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we were enemies, but now we are beloved in the beloved. That's Jesus Christ he's referring to there. And one more, chapter 2 of Ephesians Let me read verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were enemies of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our sin. But he loved us and made us alive together with Christ, And saved us by his grace. There are many reasons we have to be discouraged, to be sure, in this fallen world we live in. But there are many more reasons to be encouraged as believers. Every reason to be discouraged, in fact, can be matched with a better reason to be encouraged. What better reason do we have to be encouraged than the fact that we are beloved by God himself? Well, actually, there might be one better reason to be encouraged. And that's the third thing I want to point out by way of application here. And that is that, as Paul says in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Perhaps the only thing better than knowing that we are beloved by God is knowing that his love for us will never be revoked. It'll never be reversed. It'll never change. It'll never come to an end. The gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable. The eternal purpose of God and the electing love of God are unchangeable. So while we can Be encouraged by the fact that we are beloved by God, we can be secure and satisfied knowing that His love will never come to an end. It is irrevocable and irreversible and unchangeable. So we can be secure and satisfied in that knowledge. See, we're not meant to live the Christian life like a little girl who's in an orphanage waiting to be adopted, and a new family comes and takes her home for the weekend. And she's loved by that family, but understandably, she's insecure and restless because she's never quite sure if their love is going to continue through the end of that weekend or if she's going to be sent back to the orphanage yet again with a broken heart. No, we're, we're meant to live the Christian life like that same little girl after she's already been adopted by that family, after she's already been welcomed into a forever home, by a family who will always love her. And she's secure and satisfied knowing that both her adoption and her new family's love for her are irrevocable. They're not going to be revoked at the end of the weekend, they're irreversible. She's never going to go back to the orphanage. As Christians, we can be secure and satisfied in the unchanging love of our Heavenly Father. We used to be His enemies, but now we are His beloved sons and daughters. He has adopted us into His forever family. And our status and His love are irrevocable. So we should remember that we were His enemies and be humbled But now we are his beloved, so we should be encouraged. And his love for us is irrevocable. We can be secure and satisfied in his unchanging love. So again, Paul's explaining to these Gentile believers why God's going to save all Israel. That even though they're enemies of God in terms of the gospel, they're beloved of God in terms of election because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, he's going to save all Israel. It's his purpose to save all the elect among the Israelites, and he will accomplish that purpose. And then what he does next is he talks about disobedience and mercy. That it's God's purpose for both elect Israelites and elect Gentiles to show mercy on both, even though they were disobedient. Let's look at that now under our second main point, much more briefly. Look at verse 30. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, Israel's disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Note two things here briefly. First, the disobedience of both Jews and Gentiles. He mentions that at the beginning of verse 30. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, At the end of verse 30, he refers to their disobedience, meaning Israel's disobedience. And verse 31 so they too have now been disobedient. And finally, verse 32 for God has consigned all to disobedience. All there, meaning both Jews and Gentiles. Sort of like earlier in Romans, Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. What then, are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good not even one. Paul's saying in Romans 11 here that for both unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, disobedience to God is what characterizes their lives. They were disobedient. They say no to God and yes to sin. They turn away from God and follow their own desires. They are disobedient to God. As Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Or back in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 16, referring to unbelieving Israelites, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. In other words, they've disobeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Or verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But of course, in addition to noting the disobedience of both Jews and Gentiles, secondly, we should note the mercy of God on both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 30 For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, the Israelites, Have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. They were disobedient and deserving of judgment, but instead they received mercy. Instead, God had mercy on them. That's true of all believers all the elect. We were disobedient, but have now received mercy. Remember the verse I just quoted from Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, etc. That was us. We were disobedient to God, but God was merciful to us. Verses 4 and 5 of Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us by his mercy, even though we were disobedient and undeserving. And as we draw to a close this morning, let me mention two ways I think we should respond to that truth. Since we have received mercy, even though we were disobedient and undeserving, first, we should show mercy to others. We should show mercy to others. We shouldn't be like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who was forgiven of his debt of 10,000 talents but then refused to forgive the debt of his fellow servant who owed him only a hundred denarii. He who is forgiven much should love much. We've received mercy even though we deserve judgment, so we should show mercy on others. We should show mercy to our spouse if we're married. Since our own debts have been forgiven, we shouldn't demand payment from them when they sin against us or hurt us or wrong us in some way which we, we do plenty to them we've been shown mercy by our savior so we should show mercy to our spouse parents who have children in the home we should show mercy to our children to be sure we are called to discipline them when they disobey But we should do so with a heart full of mercy, not anger or frustration. As parents, we are recipients of mercy. So we should be dispensers of mercy to our children. God has poured out mercy on us, so we should pour out mercy on them. Don't be like the Hoover Dam toward your kids when it comes to mercy. Be like Niagara Falls. We should show mercy, all of us, to others, to siblings, to parents, to fellow church members. We should show mercy even to the person it's most difficult for us to show mercy to. God has shown mercy to us, and empowered by that mercy, we should show mercy to others. Second, and finally, since we have received mercy, even though we were disobedient, undeserving, we should see the brightness and the brilliance of God's mercy against the backdrop of the darkness of our disobedience. And I say that because I think it's easy for us to kind of get used to mercy to become accustomed to it it's easy for us to become for the mercy of God to become so normal that we we don't always notice it it's kind of like a, a beautiful majestic tree you might pass on the way to church every Sunday there it stands in all its beauty and majesty but you've seen it so many times that you just you don't really see it anymore. I think it can be like that with the mercy of God. But when we encounter a passage like this one, when we're reminded of the fact that we were enemies of God and disobedient to God, but now we are beloved by God irrevocably and have received mercy from God richly, then we should see, we should see the brightness and the brilliance of his mercy against the dark backdrop of our disobedience and what we deserve. So let the mercy of God shine more brightly in your heart this morning and see the mercy of God more clearly today. See it standing forth in all its beauty and majesty. The mercy of God on the disobedient The mercy of God on you and me. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you and we praise you for your great mercy to us in the gospel. We thank you for how you've poured out your mercy on us. Help us, please, to pour it out on others. And to see your mercy more clearly today in all its brightness and beauty and majesty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a minute during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard from God's word.